0: invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John we will be completing chapter one this morning's um, been I've delighted really enjoyed our study so far and we are going to see some pretty amazing things this morning as well Just turning there pass out our outline, and uh, <clears throat> it's amazing we're already at Sunday again the week flies by the weeks are very fast. Um, and, uh, bring that up because, as you know, this first chapter of John is the first week of Jesus' ministry, following his baptism, his temptation comes, and we get the first week, um, what, what happens, is sort of insight that none of the other gospels give us into, uh, you know, this part of Jesus' ministry, and, uh, very short period of time, but a lot happens in just these few days, um begins in verse 19 with the testimony of John. John's inquiring about who he is, and he tells us he's a pointer. He's not the Messiah. He's not any of these prophesied figures. He's just the voice um, calling Israel to prepare for Yahweh, who's coming. Um, Day two, uh, we see John testify again about the identity of Jesus. He's the Lamb of God. He's the one that's going to baptize his people with the Holy Spirit. And then last week, we came to day three. Which shifts the focus now from John the Baptist onto the one John the Baptist was sent to prepare for, onto Jesus, and that extends from verses thirty-five to verse fifty-one. It's days three and four, and in these these two days, days three and four, we get six scenes which display the identity of Jesus. And the essence of discipleship. So the focus is moving away from John to Jesus, and the disciples of John are moving away from John to Jesus. And we get um, these six scenes in these two days, verses thirty-five to fifty-one. And last week we tackled the first three scenes um, of this uh, of this gospel. And um, the first thing we noted last week was that discipleship after Jesus is the only proper response to John's testimony. John's testimony must believe, and what does it look like to believe John's testimony? It looks like following Jesus in discipleship. We also saw that Jesus will give spiritual sight to his devoted followers, and, um, as you see, if you look through this, it's just very mundane, ordinary language that's used. The disciples literally follow after Jesus, they walk after him, they spend the night with him. And yet all of John's key discipleship words are embedded here. Um, he's teaching us something. And then finally, we saw that Jesus will radically transform his identity, the identity of his disciples. Um, he declares that Peter, he changes his name from Simon to Peter, a um, rock not only tells Peter what he will become, but he tells Peter what he will make him to become. Um, so there's a lot there. I encourage you, um, you can download the lesson online. You can pick up the outline back here. Um, we got a lot to tackle this morning, so um, we'll not spend much time on review. So today we come to day four in this week, and we continue to get um, insights into the identity of Jesus. In the essence of discipleship, we get three more scenes that will complete this picture. So this morning we'll be in verses 43 to 51. And word about Jesus is continue, going to continue to be spread by personal testimony. That's how it's happened. From John the Baptist, he declares something about Jesus and testifies about Jesus. And his disciples respond to testimony. It's the same pattern that goes through this whole section. Also, Jesus continues to take initiative. Those who come to yes, Jesus, yeah. they don't speak first. So Jesus speaks God. first. Jesus takes initiative in each of these scenes. in each of these scenes, Jesus reveals something about himself and something about this discipleship. So look with me first at this at this next scene, verses 43 to 44. Verses 43 to 44. It says on the next day, it's day four. Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So in this scene, we see that Jesus calls and compels his disciples to follow his purpose here in Bethany, across from the Jordan, that's where he's at right now, where John has been baptizing. Um, it's been accomplished. He's come. He's been revealed to Israel. John's proclaimed that he's the Lamb of God. He's no longer the hidden Messiah. He's on the scene. His purpose has been accomplished, and now he's ready to go to Galilee, where he's going to resume much of his much of his ministry, and actually where his first sign is going to take place in Cana, in chapter two. He's already acquired three of his disciples, Andrew, Peter, and possibly John. It's a third unnamed disciple, we don't know for sure. But before he returns, he's going to seek out a fourth disciple, and then a fifth disciple, um, who's going to go with him to Galilee. The first thing that stands out to us in this verse is the contrast to the other Disciples that came to Jesus. The other three respond to the testimony of John, but here Jesus seeks out. Jesus comes after Philip here. So the first thing we can say under this point is that Jesus seeks out his own disciples. It says Jesus found Philip. Finding implies a purposeful pursuit. You only find what you look for. Jesus didn't just bump into Philip, in other words. He is after Philip. He looks and finds Philip. Very similar to how Andrew finds Peter. Look at verse 41. It says the first thing Andrew does after coming to know Jesus as the Messiah, it says he found Peter. He found Simon. He looked for him. He was after him and he found him. Down in verse 45, Philip does the same with Nathanael. Philip found Nathanael. But here we're told, verse 43, that Jesus found Philip. Jesus already knows Philip. And he has purposed to make Philip a disciple long before Philip knows Jesus verse is here to tell us that Jesus is not just sitting passively by. Yes, we see the disciples in the other scenes actively going after Jesus, but this scene tells us that every disciple that comes to Jesus, Jesus is not simply sitting passively by, just hoping people will come to him. He is actively pursuing his disciples. And this will be revealed as we go through this whole passage. It's abundantly clear. He intentionally and specifically goes after his disciples. And while it's not explicitly stated here, it's just alluded here, we're going to come to see as we go through the Gospel of, of John that the Father has given sheep to his Son Jesus. He's given a flock to the Son, for the Son to come, call to Himself, and die for. Him. Look over at chapter 10. There's a very similar pattern. That's happening here. That Jesus explains in chapter 10. Look at chapter 10. You know this passage well. It's the passage of the good shepherd. Chapter 10 verse 3. Jesus declares he's the good shepherd. And look what he says. He says that to him the gatekeeper opens. And the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep. By name and leads them out. He has his own sheep. He calls them. Verse four. When he has brought out his own, all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep what follow. There's the discipleship word we've seen all through this section. They follow him. Why? Because they know. In other words, John will tell us that ultimately you do not become a sheep by believing. But one believes because he is a sheep. Look over at chapter 10, verse 26. Jesus is in a confrontation with the Pharisees. They're not believing, and Jesus says, but you do not believe because you are not a part of my flock my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me exactly what's going on here in Philip now we're not talking about we're not saying that your faith is not necessary, your faith is necessary it's the instrument by which we receive and appropriate the work of Christ to ourselves, nobody is saved who does not exercise faith faith in Christ. It's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the ultimate cause of one's faith. The ultimate reason why anybody becomes a disciple of Christ. What's the ultimate reason? It's that the Father gave a flock to his Son, which he came to save, and he would lose nothing. Look at chapter 6. Jesus says something very similar. This theme is all through the Gospel of John. Chapter 6, verse 37. Look at what Jesus says. Chapter 6, 37. All that the Father gives me might come to me. No. All the Father gives to me will come to me. And look at this balance between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast. Yes, you have to come. You come, you believe. But ultimately, why do you come? Because the Father gave you to the Son. And look what he says next. Verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. Philip is a sheep. Philip is chosen by the Father. Philip was given to the Son. Jesus knows him. He seeks him out. He calls him by name. And what does Philip do? He hears. He hears the voice of the shepherd. He responds. He follows. That's what's going on here. And the same is true of every one of Christ's disciples. The same of you. The same of me. Yes, we act our wills. Yes, we put forth real faith in Christ. We receive him. We embrace him as the Lamb of God. But this scene is meant to sort of pull the curtains back. And that's what John's going to do for his Gospels. Pull the curtains back and show us the decisive factor in our conversion. The decisive factor why anybody would go after Christ, seek Christ. And it's because of God's prior work. The Father... Chooses and gives to the Son. The Son goes after and seeks. And the Spirit applies through the new birth. The Trinity is involved in your conversion. We're going to find out in the Gospel of John. So any disciple who finds and follows Jesus, John is telling us we need to know. We need to come to know that we've only done so because Jesus has first found us. He comes and he finds us. And he compels him. So who is Philip? Well, we're not told specifically, but we know he's from Galilee. Look at verse 44 of chapter 1. It says, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and, and Peter. And so, where is he right now? Well, he's in Bethany across the Jordan, where John's been baptizing. So he's most likely also a disciple of John the Baptist. He's probably here. He's heard the preaching of John. He's come here for the baptism of John, for preparation for Messiah. He certainly knew John wasn't a Messiah. He knew he was there to point to him. He may have even heard about Jesus, but he had not responded in following Jesus up to this point. And so Jesus not only finds him, but he shows him that he has the authority to demand discipleship. Look what he says. He finds Philip, and he says to him, follow me. There's this word follow against, this discipleship word. And at that time, rabbis, there was many rabbis, they would have a a following. People who would come after them and learn from them, get their teaching, and and imitate their, their way of life. But rabbis never demanded people come and be their disciples, one would choose their own rabbi for themselves. You sort of like Pastor Pharaoh coming and saying, you must be a member of my church. You don't do that. Well, What audacity, right? But Jesus is no ordinary rabbi. He comes and he demands discipleship. He has authority to be heard, submitted to, and believed. In other words, Jesus initiates here In order to make it clear that discipleship is not optional. It's not second tier Christianity. It is what faith in his Messiahship looks like. He will not leave Philip here with just intellectual notions about him. He will not leave Philip here with just some ideas as a take it or leave it Messiah. He calls him to act on these truths. Philip is not a disciple until the truths that he's heard John preached are embraced and followed. And that's what Jesus is after. He tells him, follow me. It's a command. Because Jesus is the Messiah, the Lamb of God, the one that baptizes with the Spirit, even Yahweh incarnate, we must respond to him with a life of trust, devotion, and submission. That's what he's saying. His identity has implications for our lives. So, how does Philip respond? Well, we're not told um, how he responds, just we weren't told how Peter responded, right? It's assumed. He says, Follow me, and Philip follows. <clears throat> In other words, Jesus' call creates what it commands. He seeks his own, he commands them to believe and follow, and the result is they follow. What did he say. My sheep, what? They hear my voice. Always. They find. The only response of Philip is what we get in verse 45. What does it say? Philip found Nathaniel. Much like Andrew's first action after coming to know Messiah, his first action is to do what? Go find Peter? Andrew's first action, uh, Philip's first action is what? He goes and finds Nathaniel. I think this is telling us that Not only is one of the primary ways the gospel spreads is through personal testimony, but actually one of the clearest demonstrations that we are followers is that we confess Christ and we proclaim him to others. It's part and parcel to be a disciple. So that is Jesus' confrontation with Philip. He comes after him. And that's the fourth scene. Look at the fifth scene before Jesus makes his journey back to Galilee, he has one more disciple. He must gather. In verses 45 to 49, let's read it. It says, Philip found Nathanael and he said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, to Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael came to him. Uh, Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So this scene, we will learn that Jesus possesses comprehensive knowledge of all people. Possesses comprehensive knowledge of all people. First question is, who is Nathanael? You've probably read the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and you don't bump into Nathanael. Well, again, we can't be certain, but many think that he is one of the twelve who in the other Gospels is named Bartholomew. He always is found side by side with Philip, as he is found here. Also, over in John 21, he appears with the other disciples after the resurrection of Christ, going fishing with the apostles. It's a good chance he was part of the Twelve. Um, there's also a good chance that he also is a disciple of John the Baptist. His hometown was in Cana of Galilee, where Jesus is heading to in chapter 2. Well, what is he doing here? Well, he was most likely also a disciple of John, came and heard the testimony of John the Baptist. So what are we going to learn in this scene about Jesus and discipleship um, in relationship to Nathaniel? Well, look first. Philip gives his testimony to Nathanael. He says, We have found him who Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. <coughs> he tells Nathaniel that he, along with Andrew and Peter, have come to find the Messiah. They found him. Um, he says, we This is the beginning of the Christian community. This is eyewitness testimony. It's not just him. It's we have found him. It can be corroborated. And the implication, again, of finding. He says, we found him. Remember, you only find what you are seeking, right? In other words, these are faithful Israelites. They responded to the testimony of John. They were awaiting the Messiah's coming. They're prepared for him. They were waiting. Now they found him. But look at this. Look, look, it's hard to miss the irony here. What Philip says, right? Verse forty-five. Philip says, "We have found the Messiah. We found Him." What's the irony there? The irony is, verse forty-three just told us that Jesus actually found Philip, but now Philip declares that we have found the Messiah. So in other words, yes, Philip found the Messiah. Yes, the other disciples found the Messiah. But the only reason they found him was that he first found him. That's the implication. It runs throughout this whole, this whole section. But Philip actually doesn't say Messiah here. Look at what he, he says. there. In, in this chapter, there's this whole list of descriptions of the identity of Jesus. And not one of them is repeated except for Lamb of God. Um, and uh, Philip here gives two more descriptions, two more titles Um, Jesus has already been proclaimed to be Yahweh. He's already been proclaimed to be the one coming after John, superior to John. He's the one that baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He's the chosen one of God. He's the Lamb of God. He's Rabbi. He's Messiah. And now Philip says, him whom Moses and the Law and the Prophets also wrote. The Law and the Prophets summarize the whole Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that's written in the Old Testament. Everything prophesied, everything promised, everything prefigured will be fulfilled in Christ. And we're going to get a specific illustration of that at the very end of this chapter in verse 51. In what way does he fulfill the Old Testament? We're going to see it in a very stunning way. But we'll get to that in a moment. One more thing to notice is the emphasis on the written scriptures. It says, whom they wrote... Faith in Jesus as Messiah is built on faith in the Old Testament scriptures. These men here are faithful Israelites. They believed the Old Testament scriptures. They were ready. They were prepared for him. And throughout the Gospel of John that we're going to see, it's impossible to claim that you believe the Old Testament and not believe in Jesus. You can't do that. Jesus comes onto the scene and he exposes people who do not truly believe the Old Testament because they don't believe believe in him. Well, to this testimony, um, Nathanael responds in verse 46. Look what he says. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? (laughs) Well, Jesus' birthplace, we know, was not Nazareth. It was Bethlehem. But Nazareth was his hometown. It's where he grew up. And uh, it was a small town. There was a couple hundred people there was well, it large, um, it's quite insignificant. And so Nathaniel questions whether it's possible that anything good can come out of Nazareth, much less God's Messiah. It's like saying, can anything good come out of Rustburg? Right? What comes out of Rustburg? Nothing. Right? That's the point. Um, Jesus breaks all the mo- the molds and expectations from Messiah. He's the greatest, and yet he comes from the lowest yet, despite Nathaniel's skepticism, Philip invites him to come and, literally, come and behold. Come and behold him. Well now, um, Philip brings Nathaniel to Jesus, and just like all the other scenes, so too here, Jesus initiates the conversation. Jesus is always the one initiating, and he does it again here. Nathaniel is invited to come and see, but he will soon realize that the one he has come to see has already seen him. Known him thoroughly. Look at verse 47. Jesus saw, it's a key word. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Jesus sees Nathanael coming and he reveals that he has comprehensive knowledge of his heart, in the heart of everyone. He says concerning Nathaniel, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. He identifies him as one who is truly an Israelite. This word truly is also used later when Jesus talks about those who are truly my disciples, in contrast with those who merely say their disciples in name but are not truly. He says this one is truly an Israelite. An Israelite indeed, not in name only, but one indeed, the one who has the ideal heart that you're supposed to have in the Old Testament. Well, Jesus, in what, in what sense is he an Israelite indeed? Look what he says. In whom there is no deceit. It means he's not coming to Jesus with duplicitous motives. He's not coming um, with, with, with uh, impure motives. Deceit. Who is the deceiver in the Old Testament? Who's the key deceiver? It's Jacob, right? He's not coming as a Jacob like. Person, but he comes as a true Israel. What happened to Jacob when he wrestled with God? God changed his name to Israel, right? He's not coming as the as the first kind of Jacob. He's coming as the second one, whom God has changed his heart. And we're going to see a connection to Jacob. I bring this up now because that's where we're going at the very end of this this chapter. So Jesus sees right into Nathaniel's heart. He sees he's come with pure motives. He says you're a pure, you're a true Israelite. You believe the Old Testament scriptures. You come with a heart to know to do God's will, and Jesus reveals it. And Jesus doesn't just know Nathaniel's heart. He knows the heart of every, everyone in this room. Look over at chapter 2, verse 25. 23 through 25. We will talk about this in detail when we get there for just a few weeks. Look what it says. Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs he was doing, there's something wrong with this belief. Verse 24, Jesus on his part didn't entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He sees right through it. And he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. He knows it. He sees the perfect clarity of the hearts and the motives of all those who come to him. Whether it's true faith, or whether it's not. Well, Nathaniel obviously is caught off guard. I would be caught off guard as well. I'm so sure you would. He's never met Jesus before, and Jesus has just declared with absolute accuracy the condition of his heart. Look at verse 48. Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? It's kind of kind of funny, Nathaniel doesn't deny what Jesus just said. He says, I am an Israelite indeed. I am not coming to you with duplicitous motives. He doesn't deny it. One commentator said with a touch of humor, the gospel writer highlights Nathaniel's candor as a way of confirming Jesus' view of him as a man without deceit. In other words, he is seeking Jesus with pure motives. He's not after self-congratulations. He's not saying, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm just a, a poor sinner, poor me, poor me. His focus isn't on him at, uh, at all, right? What's his focus on? It's on Christ. He's coming to know who Christ is, to find the one John the Baptist pointed to. And so he asks, how do you know me? From where do you know me? How do you have such insights into my heart? But look at Jesus' answer in verse 48. Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. In other words, Jesus says that he possesses comprehensive sight of the lives of all men. Jesus displays his knowledge about Nathanael's heart in verse 47, and he proves it by displaying comprehensive knowledge about his life in verse 48. Nathaniel says, how do you know this about my heart? Jesus says, because I know everything about you. Nathaniel, I saw you. Now the question that comes up here, naturally, everyone asks, is what was Philip doing under the fig tree, right? Mm -hmm. And um, (coughs) to which we have no answer. All you're left is to speculate. And there's a lot of speculations out there if you go dig around. But I think it misses the point. The point is not on... Nathanael's activity. It's on his location when Philip came to call him back in verse 45. The point is not on Nathaniel's activity but on Jesus' sight and super knowledge of Nathaniel even before Philip called him. Jesus already knew him. That picks up this thing again that Jesus already knows his own and he's already coming after his own. He knows him. Jesus reveals he has perfect knowledge and total knowledge about where Nathanael was when Philip came to him. His perfect and total knowledge of Nathanael's entire life and the rest of the disciples. Which probably means that Jesus is implying he knows about Nathanael's little Nazareth comment as well. <laughs> so, oops. <laughs> <laughs> In other words, Jesus is making the same point as he did with with Philip. Leon Morris writes, What counts is not that Philip found Nathaniel, but that Jesus had already found him, just as surely as he found Philip to begin. Beyond this, this is telling us that it is by coming face to face with the one that already possesses comprehensive knowledge about you, it's by coming face to face with him, That is how you behold him. It's by coming to know Christ as the one who knows everything about you. That's what it means to behold him. And that's what happens to Nathaniel here. Part of our coming to Jesus is coming to an awareness that Jesus knows it all. There's no deceiving him. He knows my motives. He knows my actions. He knows my sins. He looks with x-ray vision over my life and my heart. It's exposed before him. He knows what you were looking at on your computer last night. He knows the angry word you spoke about your spouse in your heart. He knows it all. And the thought should pierce us. But the good news is that the one who knows it all is also the land of God, who's also come to die for every one of those. For those who receive Him, and trust Him. There's no hiding. So Paul's come to Him. And because he sees the heart of men, we can come to him with confidence. Even if we have weak, flickering faith, which often I do. Because he promised whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. He promised that. He sees it. That's why I come to him. Because he knows my heart better than I do. Sometimes I don't even see my faith. Do I truly believe or not? Where's my comfort? He knows it. He sees it. He sees every seedling of true faith, and he will not crush it. As we see here, Nathaniel's faith and the faith of the disciples is very small, very weak. He sees it. He affirms it. And he nourishes it. And he grows it. That's what he does for all of his people. There's comfort in this here. He knows your heart more thoroughly than you do. So come and trust him with your whole life. Well, now verse 49, Nathaniel he sees. He sees in a way he had not seen before. Verse 49, Nathaniel answered, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. He has two more titles to this list. Remember this list of titles of Messiah going through? Get two more. He declares the identity of Jesus here. He's the son of God and the king of Israel. And these titles are near synonyms of each other. In the Old Testament, the Davidic king, was often called the Son of God. It simply means that he represents God, he mediates the rule of God to, to man. And Nathaniel puts the two together here. He's the Messiah, as such, he's the true king. But Nathanael, like many of the other characters in John, speaks better than he knows. Jesus is the Son of God in an even more profound sense. How's that? Who's the not only the representative of God, he is God. Fully, perfectly mediating God's rule to man. Revealing God's person. So Nathaniel here declares that he's the son of God, the king of Israel, and is probably loaded with current political baggage. He expects him to be the king of Israel, to do what Judas Maccabees did and take care of the Romans and, and, and restore Judaism and set up Torah as the center and this political Messiah. In other words, Nathaniel's sight is true. Is he the Son of God? Is he the King of Israel? Yeah, he is. But it's incomplete. That's exactly where Jesus goes in verse 50. Look what he says. Verse 50. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Jesus begins by affirming his faith. He doesn't rebuke him. He responds correctly, he should believe because of what Jesus just revealed to him this is the first instance of believing in, in John's gospel and John's after developing a theology of belief for us and it begins here his faith is incomplete and it needs growth but it is real Jesus says you believe then Jesus assesses the foundation of his faith his faith is based on Jesus' comprehensive knowledge about him that's fine. That's all he had at that point. And he responded correctly. But Jesus' messiahship is going to be much more than that. He's going to be much more than a political ruler. And it's the essence of this messiahship that must be grace that he's calling the rest of the disciples to. Which leads to Jesus' promise to grow his faith. He says, you will see greater things than this. Implying you're going to have even greater faith. you will be an even greater foundation of faith you will have an even greater vision of the person of Messiah, the work of Messiah, all that Jesus' Messiahship means. So before we move on, um, pull out a couple of parallels. The first thing is we don't want to draw too close of a parallel here between us and the disciples. Here the disciples do not have a full picture of Jesus' Messiahship. And yet they have true faith. They're still in the Old Covenant. They're, they're transitioning to know who Messiah is here. They eventually come to know. But we have no excuse. We have the gospel. We know it. So there's no true faith in Messiah. That doesn't include his death and, and resurrection for us. But another parallel may be drawn in that Christ promises to grow the faith of his disciples here. And I mean, growth in faith is a massive theme in John. When you first came to Christ... All you need, all you knew was you're a sinner and you needed a savior and Christ is that you're based for it. And as you've grown in Christ, um, that seedling of faith sprouting is sprouting, it's grown, it's grown, and you should have a more profound knowledge of your sin and a more profound grasp of the, of the person of Christ. He promises to do that for his disciples. It's an evidence that your faith in the beginning was is true. Well, that is his confrontation with Nathaniel. And now we come to the final scene in verse 51. Here Jesus is the ultimate meeting place with God to which all of his disciples must come. Verse 50 tells Nathaniel that he will see and have faith built on greater things. And now Jesus tells him what he will see. He now addresses all the disciples. He says, you all will see. Verse 51, Jesus promises to all his disciples that they will come to an accurate and correct faith of this person. In other words, if this initial faith of theirs doesn't rise to the level of embracing Jesus' entire messiahship, all it includes, then it is not true faith. It is deficient. The essential ingredient of the Messiah is what Jesus is about to declare. So the disciples here do not have yet a full Christian faith. They're not there yet. But they're on the way. So what is this? Look at verse 51. Jesus said to him, Truly, truly I say to you, you will see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending in the Son of Man. Well, what does that mean? Well, in closing, we will look at what Jesus referred to. Go to Genesis chapter 28. I told you we connect this to Jacob which is what Jesus is doing. Genesis 28. What does Jesus mean here? You'll see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What are you talking about? Well, Jacob is fleeing from Esau. He's on the way to Haran. And he stops in a town later known as Bethel. God appears to him in a dream. somebody says verse 12. It says, he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were doing what? They were ascending and descending on it, and Yahweh stood it. Down in verse 17, Jacob awakes. After he sees his vision, God declares the covenant promises. He awakes, he's afraid. The well, awesomeness of this is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. We don't have time to unpack all of this, but Jesus is basically saying he is the new Bethel. He is the ultimate access point between God and man. His messiahship means that he is the means whereby all of God's covenant blessings are going to come. He is the ladder that connects man to God. The dwelling place of God is no longer confined to a place or a system The word became flesh and did what? Tabernacle among us. It is him now. It's no longer the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus as the incarnate son of God mediates God's presence in a way nothing in the Old Testament ever did. If you want to know God, if you want to worship God, if you want to be reconciled to God, if you want to meet with God, it takes place exclusively through Jesus. That's what we see. He is the new access point between God and man. He's the son of man. He is the king, but he's the one who will lay himself out as a sacrifice. And he'll accomplish this through his cross work and resurrection. And he promises them they will see. They'll see it as they remain with him. They'll see it as they see his signs in chapter 2 in Cana. They'll see it at the death and resurrection. We, if you're a true believer, you've come and seen this. This is what it means to be a disciple. You embrace this about Jesus. He's your only hope. And those who embrace him by faith, they have heaven open. In all of its fullness and glory. By faith alone. And it's ultimately owing to his grace. So, what does it mean to be his disciple? It means you embrace Jesus as all of this, all of these titles and descriptions that have been given to us, all of these um, Descriptions of what it means to follow him at the beginning. You worship God with dependence on Jesus. You seek to know God by knowing Jesus. And you may enjoy heaven open by faith in Jesus. So the call is receive him, depend on him. And say, oh, Michael, I'm not already a believer. Praise the Lord. Trust him. Depend on him every day. And grow. Remember, faith is growing. Know his Messiahship in this way. More and more. And Live out the implications of that in your life. That's what it means to follow. So it is ten seventeen. Um, we're at time. Any questions, comments um, on this passage? It's packed full. Next week we'll be in Cana of Galilee where he does his first sign, and it is awesome. What we're going to learn here? Any thoughts? It's a lot of implications there for us. And, uh, take a chew on. Questions? Yes. You always knew that Peter and Andrew and James and John were fishermen. What professions did Philip and Nathaniel have? They didn't really say that. That's a very good question. Philip was from Bethsaida. Bethsaida was a fishing village. He's probably a fisherman as well. Nathaniel was from Cana. We don't know. We're not told really what he what he did. Um, Canaan was not next to the Sea of Galilee, so he may be from another profession. But, yeah, it's a good good question. Working the vineyard in Perhaps. <laughs> yeah. you knew? It? Yeah. A man. There's yeah. man. Right? Yeah. In speculation, but it's possible. Yeah. Is this the first location where Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man? Yeah. In- in the, in the Gospel of, of John, yep. And actually, this scene takes place before um, pretty much any of the ministries you see of Jesus um, in Matthew um, Mark So i yeah. yeah. It's a loaded, loaded term. I don't know, I don't know what, it, what it all means. Yes? I always feel like it would be easier to believe if you know, Jesus were here in our time, in our location. <laughs> But like, we also have not, like you said, the gospel, but also the spirit, which Excellent. they didn't get till he left, and he said it was to our advantage. Because mm-hmm. in bodily form, he was limited by time and location, Yep. whereas that's not <laughs> our case. Excellent. Yep, yep. And we say at the very end of the gospel of John, John says, these things are written mm-hmm. so that you might believe. In other words, we have just as much incentive to believe, just as much foundation for our faith as the first disciples were just accountable to believe. And uh, through the spirit, he applies that uh, to our hearts through the new birth. Excellent. The great Savior. So let me pray. Lord God, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for sending Him. And for seeking us before we sought you. Thank you for the grace that we could have <clears throat> been left to ourselves and, um, and perish. You're so merciful, thank you. Help us, Lord, to grow. Help us to know Him and His Messiahship and all that it means. More and more, we would persevere. And live out the implications. What it means that he's the lame of God for my life. And what it means that he's the Messiah for my life. He's worthy. And I ask that you teach us. Prepare our hearts, Lord, for the service to come. I ask that we come with hearts that are ready to be um, reproved by your word. And instructed. And driven to the gospel of afresh. We love you. And thank you. In Jesus' name. Alright guys. You like this You're reading ahead. Cana. Um, Let's figure out what's going on.